Welcome to The Ride, Life, Work, and Wealth Podcast with your host, Chris DeRoe. Years ago, Chris was a firefighter and a paramedic and witnessed many people not getting another tomorrow, and it shaped who he is now as a financial strategist. Chris doesn't just help people plan for a secure tomorrow, he helps them plan for a better today. Chris lives and works in Burlington, Ontario, and runs an advisory practice named Three Hats Financial. Let's get to it. Welcome back to The Ride, Life, Work, and Wealth with Chris Duro of Three Hats Financial. I'm Patrice Sikora. Interest rates are hovering at near historic lows, and that may prompt thoughts of refinancing or buying a second property. That makes this a must-listen podcast. Chris's guest this episode is Derek Gold, a mortgage agent at Mortgage Scout in Toronto. Derek has been in the mortgage industry for more than a decade. He arranges financing for purchases as well as refinancings with a focus on rental and secondary properties. And Derek also has experience as a landlord. Chris, why don't you start out by tackling the issue of those low interest rates? Yes, very good point. The interest rates are the lowest we've seen in, well, Derek can touch on this, even historically low. And the reason for that is just everyone knows because of the current environment with COVID, the government had to act fast and help the economy as much as they could with stimulus and lowering rates to try and keep our head above water, which they actually did a very good job of doing. And as a result of that, rates are low. Derek will probably touch on this as well, too, is that house prices have increased. I know in the GTA, there's some numbers floating around of like anywhere between 20 and 25% increase. So it's a very different environment. And uh, I just know that real estate agents and mortgage brokers right now are very, very, very busy for people wondering, should they stay in their current mortgage? Should they break it? Is it worth it? People moving out to Siberia, but a lot more buying bigger houses because interest rates are cheap. There's just so many factors in this that's keeping them just so busy. So Derek, I have known him for over 20 years as a good friend and uh, interesting this morning <laughs> that he just informed us that he just got stung by a bee right before this. So if we hear like a thud, it's going to be a little difficult to give you an EpiPen <laughs> through the microphone. <laughs> so if you, start dro- if you start drooling all over the desk and, and can't swallow or anything like that, just, uh, just, just let, let us, us know. know. <laughs> it's just my luck too, right? <laughs> Uh, All right, Derek. Well, let's start with, this is going to kind of be a bit of a different podcast in the sense that it'll be more quicker questions and answers just because some of the questions I'm actually going to ask you are from our listeners. And there's quite a few here that people are definitely interested in finding out. So hopefully you can handle that pressure. Yes. Hopefully I can uh, survive this. (laughs) All right. So let's start with, yes, rates are very low. And with them being low, I'm getting a lot of people asking, should they even look at breaking their mortgages? And should they be looking into lower rates? So what are, Derek, some of the factors that people should be weighing on if they should or shouldn't be breaking their current mortgage? Well, some of the factors that people would most definitely want to look at is, are they in a variable rate or if they're in a fixed rate? So currently, if you are in a variable rate and you wanted to break your mortgage, it would be a three-month interest penalty. So for example, if you have a $300,000 mortgage, your interest rate is 3%, you would multiply that to calculate your yearly average interest rate that you pay and then divide it by four. So that would give you a three-month interest penalty. Whereas 
on a fixed rate mortgage, you would pay the greater of three month interest or the interest rate differential. And what the interest rate differential is, is a calculation that basically, if you're breaking that fixed mortgage, the bank wants to know the opportunity costs that they've lost out on by you breaking your term and them having to reinvest that money. So generally with the interest rate differential, the penalty is much higher than a fixed or than a variable rate mortgage. And out of the two, I'm going to assume the bank, when the bank uses both formulas, I'm assuming they're going to go with the higher one. Yes. The bank always goes with a higher one on the variable rate. It's always three months interest on the fixed. It's the greater of the two. Okay. Derek Patrice here. What, what rate is better for an individual, a variable or a fixed? It depends on the individual. If you are, if you foresee yourself breaking the mortgage within the five-year term, or if you need to refinance or you're going to move, it's better to be in a variable because it gives you more flexibility. It reduces your penalty and it just allows you to move that mortgage with a reduced cost. If you're in a house that you foresee yourself being in for five years, or you're not going to do anything, or you basically want to set it and forget it, so to speak, you would take a fixed rate. Okay, Derek, back to the, the penalty. So I'm going to assume that people are going to want to figure out what the institution is going to charge them and then figure out from there, no matter what term they take, a three or four year term, what their savings are going to be and what that break even point is, because it, I don't think it's going to make much sense just to break a mortgage and go to a lower rate. And then your break even is literally a month or so before the term ends anyways. You'd want to be breaking even pretty quick to make it make sense, correct? Correct. Totally. What you want to do first and foremost is find out from your institution that you've borrowed your money from either TD or Scotia or whoever it is, what your penalty will be to break that fixed rate mortgage. Then you can do a calculation based on the penalty added on to what your existing balance is. Look at both amortization schedules as if you pay the penalty or you just continue on the same track with the existing mortgage and find out where your break-even point is, if the penalty that you pay is actually going to be more expensive than actually just staying the course with the existing mortgage that you have. You have obviously experienced this. Should they get that in writing or is there a chance that they go back and the bank says, oh, sorry, I know we said this, but this is actually your penalty or other hidden fees? Is, can that happen at all? Well, generally, if you were, if you were speaking with somebody at a certain branch or a certain institution, they would give you that on paper. But the penalty that is calculated, it's only calculated that day. So if, if I went to my bank today and said, hey, I want to break my mortgage as of today, they would say your penalty as of Tuesday, October 13th is 5,000 bucks. And it can change tomorrow depending on the rates. Now let's go into amortization. I get asked this question as well, too. What are the pros and cons to a shorter and longer amortization period? The pros to a shorter amortization is you're going to pay off your mortgage quicker, it's going to cost you less, and you're going to pay less interest. The cons to that is if you want to buy a second property or you need to borrow more money down the road, if you set up your mortgage where your payment is as high as it can be based on your boring ratios, 
you can't borrow any more money. You would either have to pass on that second property or you would have to break your mortgage, pay a penalty, pay legal fees, and just incur other costs. Whereas with the longer amortization, if you set it up to start, say with a 30-year amortization, you will pay more in interest, but you will reduce your monthly costs. So in turn, if you decided to buy a second property or a rental or anything like that, you would have a greater chance or a better ability to borrow more money down the road because your borrowing, your borrowing ratios are less. Okay. And then shorter amortization costs you less over the long term, but of course the payments are higher in the short term, meaning the monthly or biweekly schedule that you pick. That's correct. If you set up your amortization longer, say 30 years to start, and you do that because your intention in six months or a year is to buy another house, the day after you close that second house and you know that you don't need to qualify for any more properties, you can increase your payment privileges, which will in turn reduce the amortization. Yeah, I've been hearing a, a lot of people taking those 30-year amortizations just to add the flexibility, but then by no means is their plan to stick with paying that off over 30 years. It's just the initial setup uh, to give them some flexibility. And then with prepayment privileges and things like that, it actually can work out pretty good in their favor as long as they do that. Are you seeing more people take that length of amortization in this environment? Yes, I am. Because most people seem to want to buy a second property or a rental property. And on a rental property, you want to amortize as long as you can anyways, because you want your monthly cash flow to be higher. And same with your second property. Depending on what stage you are in your life, you may not want to pay it off as quick. So everybody seems to want to take the 30-year amortization. And then once they know where they're at with their payments and if they need any more money or not need any more money, then they go ahead and change their amortization. The other thing is too, if you take a five-year term upon renewal, if you decide, you know what, I want to reduce my amortization to 15 years, you can do that as long as you can qualify for that. Ah, okay. And you're seeing right now then, sorry, you're seeing right now a lot of people buying second properties or or cottage, definitely cottages. I, I saw that a lot this summer. So you're seeing that a lot more than usual then? Yes, just because it allows the flexibility. Because if you, if you set your payment up too high to start and you need to, to go back to 30 years just to qualify, then you're incurring much higher costs with penalties, discharge fees, legal fees, and all that stuff. Well, basically, then it sounds like if you have any thoughts about any kind of additional property purchases, you may as well go with the 30, even if you don't do that extra purchase later on. Yes, because you can, like I said, you can you can change your amortization. You can make lump sum payments. You can make double up payments, which really will reduce the amortization just to start. And in regards to the prepayments, I know you probably don't have like an exact stat on that, but is it pretty low on the people that actually do apply those? Yeah, generally, a lot of people don't use it. People use those prepayment privileges longer into the term, like when they yeah. first when they first buy a house, like. You know, they might have to do some landscaping or do some outside work or they want to put a pool in or, you know, there's stuff they want to do. They don't have the liquid cash to do that. So they don't make those extra payments. But once, you know, life moves on and and stuff has been purchased and they have more funds, that's when they seem to put more money down. Or when the term 
is closer to the end. Like people that have maybe 15 years left or 10 years left, they want to pay it down as soon as possible. I always try and get people to any bonuses or money that they're not used to on a regular cash flow basis. So of course, year-end bonuses are some of those opportunities to be able to do that because of course it's it's huge on like I, if you just do a couple of prepayments even over the term of a mortgage or one a year it makes quite a difference in the amortization because it just goes straight to principal and what i always tell people is that with the, those bonuses and things majority of people like they know they're coming but it's your everyday cash flow that is required to support their lifestyle that stuff is nice the bonus but many people, it just drops into their bank account and then leaks out and their life doesn't change. There's nothing new. So I always just try and urge people to take that extra cash flow or that from like an RSP deposit, that refund in your taxes, something to take advantage of those prepayment privileges because it's surprising how just by doing that, how much more can save you off the amortization and the overall interest charges of the mortgage. I just surprised them before listening to how very few people take advantage of that. You definitely have to be structured and you definitely have to be poised and know what you want to do because there's some lenders that they allow you 15, 20% of the original mortgage balance per year lump sum payment you can make. Yeah. Cause people will talk about how restricted mortgages are, but the, the, those prepayment privileges that you just mentioned, they can be pre- pretty big on what you can put down without getting a penalty. For sure. Uh, anecdotally, just curiosity, any idea how many people actually stay in a property for 30 years? It seems today like it, it's almost a different generation compared to the generation before. It's like our, our parents' generation that they stayed in the same house and then, you know, the kids grow up, stay in the same school, go to university, get a job, and then, then they move away. Whereas people seem to move all the time now. And, and, especially in this environment, everybody seems to be wanting to move to the periphery. Everybody sees that, you know, we can work from home or, you know, I don't want to live in a condo anymore. I want to be out in the periphery. And that just seems to be the way the world's moving right now. Yeah. I saw a stat the other day on just Toronto condos, just the rent, the price of rent is going down somewhat because you have all of these people that were renting condos and out there to work now moving north to get some places with property and working virtually. And I've even had clients say they're not going back to commuting and spending an hour and a half each way in their car. So they are either going to hope that their new, that their employer allows them to continue working virtually, or if they have a a decent skill set, then they're just going to say, you know what, if my employer doesn't allow me to work virtually, I'm just going to find another one that will, because there's a whole bunch of them and I'm not going back and doing that. So I, yeah, totally agree. Seeing that, I know my underwriter. She works from home, and it's it's an hour and a half commute each way. So she she's working an extra three hours a day, and she loves it. And it just seems to be the consensus. Like people aren't stuck in a car for three hours, you know, racing to get home. They're at home. They can get stuff done, and it, it seems to be they're more productive. There is there definitely is some uh, heartache to it, but it seems to be that most people that are doing it are, are enjoying it. So now let's go to a a lot of questions around this self-employed, and then we'll get to retired individuals as well, but self-employed individuals trying to get a mortgage. It's surprising how much different it is when someone is taking income from a corporation or self-employed that has write-offs to qualify for a mortgage compared to an employee that can get a letter from an employer. Correct, Derek? 
Yes, I, I get this all the time, and it's yeah. it's it's such such a headache. So, for example, if you are a salary employee, if you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year, you have a job layer and a pay stub and a T four that that shows that you can use that hundred thousand dollars to qualify for mortgage. If you're self employed, and you know, for example, a realtor that makes three hundred thousand dollars a year, but writes off two hundred fifty thousand dollars that money a year and only earns on paper $50,000. That's all you can use is $50,000. You can only use the money, the income that you pay tax on. And it has to be a two-year average of filed taxes. So you can't get your cake and eat it too type of thing and write everything off, grind it right down and expect to get a, a, approved on a large mortgage because of the, because of the income you made, but you, you wrote everything down to pay less tax. That's exactly it. And you can't, so it, say for example, in 2018, you made 50,000. In 2019, you show 200,000. The bank asked the question like, hey, did you just show that knowing that you want to qualify for it? And they may not use that full amount. The banks know all the tricks. Like they, they see this stuff every day. They take the average. If you're 2018 is 75 and your 2019 is 125. They take the average of that because it's trending upwards. If your 2018 is 100 and your 2019 is 50,000, they take the lower of the two. I, I had an example the other day with clients, two individual couples going through for mortgages. And it was just, I guess, like, obviously you can add some light to this, but it's obviously tougher right now. The banks are being a little bit more strict with qualifying people. And it was a couple where she was a teacher, he was a firefighter versus another couple of mine that they're both self-employed. And the actual the self-employed couple had very little to no debt, but had a lot of assets like investments and, and money in the corp and et cetera, compared to the teacher and the firefighter but because the teacher and the firefighter had the guaranteed income from employers, they had letters from their employers, they could actually get approved much easier than the couple that's self-employed. And even though the self-employed couple, when I look at their net worth, they actually look better on paper, but it's all because they just don't have that necessarily guaranteed income coming in. Yeah. The bank loves the teacher and the firefighter because they know every other week there's going to be two paychecks going on account. Whereas the self-employed with this environment today, they don't know if, you know, these people are going to be paid for six months. They don't know what's going on with their business. You know, if they applied for a, a mortgage, the bank would want to see those self-employed people's bank statements for the last six months. And they'd want to see, okay, your money's going in. They want to know that things are still consistent. They want to know that once this mortgage closes, you're going to be able to make the payments. Now, you used the example of the real estate agent grinding down their $300,000 income to 50. What is it roughly that banks will approve you on like four to five times roughly your income that you can prove? Is that yeah. kind of a general rule of thumb? Yeah, that's generally it. It's four, 4.2 to five okay. times your salary. Okay. What you, what you declare. Okay. So that's the self-employed, which, yeah, I get questions of that all the time. So one, one other thing that, some banks will allow you to do is if you are considered a high net worth individual, and if you have over a certain amount of money in liquid funds, 
they would lend to you, or sometimes they will lend to you based on the equity. Now, are they going to pay, is that person going to pay a higher interest rate than the teacher and firefighter that have guaranteed income? Potentially, yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, these self-employed, I'm assuming that it's better to be pre-planning those because you just mentioned you need two years of taxable income to be approved on to get roughly four to five, four to five times of that in a mortgage. So if you're self-employed, you would definitely want to be pre-planning if you know that out of those two years right now that one of them was crappy, <laughs> you're going to want to take more income out this year or just get your st- yourself organized so that you're going to have those two good years, which I know can kind of be a pain because if the good, the perfect house comes up, the perfect house comes up. But do you recommend to your self-employed then to kind of get their ducks in a row then more so than just a regular employee for that reason alone? 100%. They should talk to their accountant and talk to their bank or their mortgage broker to figure out a plan prior to. They also want to avoid making other big purchases such as you know a new car or um, taking on any other debt that will be included in their debt servicing ratios. Ah, good point. So don't go lease the Porsche right before you're going to go try and get approved. That's exactly it. That $1,000 payment really handcuffs you. Yeah. Derek, this is all well and good, but what about if you're retired? You don't really have anything to show. Well, that depends if you are the retired teacher and firefighter or you're a retired self-employed person. True, true. Okay, explain. If you're the retired teacher and firefighter, you're, you have two very good pensions that are paying you every month. So they would use that to help you qualify. Whereas the self-employed people, you would have to basically show your investment portfolio. If you're collecting OAS and CPP, you would basically have to show your whole portfolio to ensure that you would be able to pay that mortgage back. How far back would you have to show so them? At least six months, because if you're telling the lender that you're going to be getting a mortgage, you need to show them your portfolio to show them that you can pay it back. But they want to make sure that your portfolio is substantial and that you will be able to pay it back in that five-year term. I'm getting asked that quite a bit right now, too, with retirees, because a lot of them are either moving, some moving to closer to their adult children which sometimes the properties can be more. So they're looking at taking on a bit more of a mortgage or some are looking at, once again, the second properties and the cottages. So I'm seeing the retirees too, asking more questions around mortgages right now than I usually do. So that is interesting. And you're saying, uh, Derek, that, that like a retiree taking RIF income, that the lending institution will look at that and that that does help them get approved. Yes, they want to make they want to make sure that that money is there because they don't want to loan it out, assuming that they can pay it back. But their RIF is minimal and won't be able to sustain the five years of a mortgage. People are selling their houses in the city, and they either pay for the house in cash or they say, "Hey, we can give it to our, our investment advisor, Chris, and he can make X, and we can borrow the money at two percent." So we're now gaining that difference in what I'm paying for the mortgage and what I'm earning in my investments. Individuals have to be careful with that. It's called leveraging. So you have to be really careful because there is a lot of risk on that. But some people do ask around that. You just have to really make sure it's appropriate 
for the individuals doing that and understanding how high a level of risk that is. Because yeah, what you're describing, Derek, it's called leveraging and people do do it. And the thing with that is people just really have to make sure that that is for them because there is a much higher risk to doing that. It's one thing to invest your own money, but when you're investing borrowed money, it can work, but there's definitely more risk to that. And individuals just need to make sure they're very aware of that risk before they think of doing that. We get asked a lot about that. It's just, there is a higher risk to that. So people have to understand what exactly what they're doing when it comes to that. All right. So next question is credit score. Now, how important is it? Derek, obviously everyone that applies to a mortgage is the first thing I, you guys are going to do is jump on there and figure out what their credit score is. So first of all, how important is it for them to having a good credit score to get a mortgage? What is a good number? And then how do they find out what it is before they need it? Because what I find is most people have no idea. Credit scores are funny. <laughs> everyone you ask about their, oh, my credit score is great. Well, how do you know? Well, I just, I've never had a problem. Well, what was the number the last time you checked? Well, I don't know. It's just good. <laughs> I find that whenever I'm chatting with clients, everyone just assumes their credit score is good. They don't usually find out what that is until they're ready to go and get it approved for a mortgage. And I would think it's much better to figure that out well in advance before getting a mortgage, just to make sure that everything is accurate and that it's a healthy score. Do you agree? For sure. There's, there's a multitude of different options here. So generally people, there's online ways to check your credit score. I think there's Credit Karma or Equifax and you can sign up to check it. Certain lenders, like Scotiabank, for example, will allow you to check your credit through one of their plans that they have. In terms of a credit score, how to improve your credit score is basically pay your bills, pay your bills on time. Don't let things go to collections don't run up your debts and carry them without making your minimum payments. If you've decided to or had to defer your mortgage over the last three months, there will be a line on your credit bureau that says you've deferred your mortgage. Um, that's another thing that lenders are looking at right now. And they, if you apply for money or, or a loan, they will ask you, why did you defer your mortgage? And you have to tell them the reason why. Now, what is, what's the number? What's a good number? Like, what are you looking for as a minimum for a person to get a good rate? I would say 700 and above. Okay. Cause people will ask that. So 700 or above is going to get you, get you a good rate. That's what you want to be. That is the number, the benchmark that we're kind of, you're going to kind of be aiming for. Correct. Yes. And certain lenders have certain thresholds. If you're below that, they won't lend to you or if they're below those thresholds, your rate isn't as good as the top credit score. Okay. And I know you mentioned that the, the banks or that, well, I think you said Scotia. I, I know too, that you can go like what I do every couple of years is I, I is a tr TransUnion and Equifax. Correct. I, I use Equifax and so it's 24, well, it used to be 24 bucks. I haven't done it for at least a year. And it, that would just give me my score. The thing I like about doing that is you can see everything and why that is important is because if there was any fraud or anything put on your credit score you can see it and i know years ago i actually had something assigned to my my history that actually wasn't mine long story but it was actually an ex-girlfriend's debt that somehow i think she did it on purpose but somehow it got tied to my score 
So I had to go through Equifax to get it. And we got it removed. It was no problem. It's just that was actually attached to my credit history. So it's good. Like if you're going to see fraud, that's one of the first things that I would be recommending to double check. And in regards to, I know score, I remember before hearing this, that credit cards, you want to make sure they're paid on time, such as you touched on Derek is massive, like always paying things on time. But I also remember hearing that you want to make sure that you're not constantly over a balance of 80%. Meaning if you have a $10,000 limit on your credit card, you don't want to be floating at $8,500 or $9,000 on that. You want to try and keep it below that 80% threshold. And there's all kinds of tips, but the biggest one, as you mentioned, Derek, is just paying things on time. The other day, my bell bill, I got an email notice that it was delayed and the, the credit card company froze my card just because it was uh, their security department because they were worried about fraud and everything was fine. But then I didn't realize Bell tried to take out their payment and, th- and I missed it. And I called them immediately and said, okay, like I just want to make sure that you guys didn't send this anywhere. And they said, no, 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 you're fine. As long as you pay it before the 14th of the month, we're not going to, we don't send that off anywhere. But that's why it's even important that something as simple as that, your credit card gets frozen, you miss a simple prepayment. And if you just keep ignoring it or forget about it, they'll send that off on you. You just don't want to have to, to deal with that. For sure. If it, if it goes to collections, that that is a, a big red flag on your credit bureau. I had that once. I had sold a property and I thought the hydro bill was paid out. And I pulled my credit a year later, later and it was, a, it was a collections by the hydro company. And I went and paid it right away. But my credit score dropped by like 200 points. Yeah. No, so that's definitely important for people listening is to make sure you, you you check that credit score first, well in advance before applying for a mortgage. And TransUnion or Equifax are the two, there's, there's more out there, but those are the two more popular ones on just checking that history. One thing you can do to protect yourself as a client is there are options at TransUnion, TransUnion and Equifax that if anybody applies for any type of loan under your name, they have to call you to ensure that Chris DeRoe is, for example, applying for that mortgage. So people aren't applying as Chris DeRoe, but it's not you. Yeah, no, good point. Well, Derek, I believe we're getting close to the end of this and I think you're going to want to go get some Benadryl. So thanks for holding out with that bee sting. Yeah, yeah, no problem. (laughs) And at least you didn't go plop on the floor. That's a really good thing. All right, thank you, Derek Gold of Mortgage Scout and of course, Chris DeRoe of Three Hats Financial. To make sure you know when new episodes of Chris's podcast are available, subscribe to The Ride, Life, Work, and Wealth using the subscribe button on this page. And of course, you can share with the share button. I'm Patrice Sikora, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to The Ride, Life, Work, and Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. All comments are of a general nature and should not be relied upon as individual advice. The views and opinions expressed in this commentary may not necessarily reflect those of IPC Investment Corporation. While every attempt is made to ensure accuracy, facts and figures are not guaranteed. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.